Well, okay. debating in my own mind whether I'm going to get everything said this morning, so whether I should start and go fast or whether I should just let you visit a little bit and go slow and finish it next week. So if anybody has the answer to that question, you can advise me what to do. Uh, We're back to Genesis chapter 1. Nice to see you this morning. We have folks back that were sick last week and folks that were here last week sick this week, so we just keep spreading the love. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for what you have told us and the way you have told us and the reason that you have told us these things. And I pray that you would help us to have understanding and appreciation for you and your work through your word. And we ask then your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, for the <clears throat> off chance of any that didn't catch it last week, I, I just kind of stopped what I was doing in Sunday school on providence. It just, just I just wasn't happy with it and. I'd had several conversations, and so just thought that it was the best time to do that. So so have turned our attention to something that I've been thinking about for a number of months now, actually since uh, going to a conference at the Ark Encounter and just kind of returning us uh, back to the basics, really not anything that we don't know, um, but throughout the course of particularly New Testament history. Christianity has waged war on a variety of fronts. Um, It has, uh, you know, waged war on the nature of Christ and the nature of salvation. And you you can just go back and read through church history and find the various conventions and conflicts in which the church has fought. You know, some of these are major, like, you know, the nature of Christ and the nature of salvation. And by major, I mean they bring in a lot of people from a lot of places and others are more localized at times. Um, But it appears that the fight that we're fighting um, in our generation is is the fight over the very foundations. Um, And in particular, uh, we're, and, and this is not an exaggeration, the the church is fighting over the definition and the distinction between a man and a woman. Um, and, and in some ways, it just doesn't get any more foundational than what is a man and what is a woman and why are men men and why are women women. 
And so uh, we're going to do more than that, but we're just going to spend however much time we spend in adult Sunday school over the next weeks or months in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is the beginning of all things. So last week we gave our attention to the creation and that God created the earth and the way in which he created the earth and why he created the earth and how he uses the creation to to demonstrate to us both his excellent power and his great wisdom and his authority. Um, God gets to tell how much we try to argue for having Christian Con, you know, connections, uh, what we're doing is really ultimately stripping God of his authority to tell us what to do. And so, um, <clears throat> so this morning then, we're just going to begin to talk about the final act of his creation, which is us. Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them and and we will if not next week the week after turn our attention to the creation of male and female this morning just simply the creation of man unlike anything else that god had made and by this point in the time in genesis we have read about the creation of the heaven and the earth and the creation of the lights and the darkness and the, and the heavens and the oceans and the firmament and the creeping things and the flying things and the swimming things. Unlike anything else that God had made, he made man in his image. Let us make man in our image. And of course, we recognize that right there in Genesis 126, we have an early insight into God's Trinitarian nature at least the fact that one God exists in more than one person, let us, make, let us make man in our image. And so the first point then this morning is this. This is the pattern. God made man in his image. What does that mean? What does it mean that you and I are made in God's image? Well, let me give you, first, a bit of a theological explanation. Let me read to you from Wayne Gruden's Systematic Theology. We may use the following definition. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. And that's a pretty good, simple explanation of what it means to be made in God's image. We are like him. We are not him, but we are like him. And we represent him. We are his, um, well, Paul calls us ambassadors. We are his agents. We are his representatives. Um, Jump ahead, if you would. I'm assuming you're in Genesis chapter 1. Jump ahead to chapter 5. Genesis 
Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And so Adam gave birth to one like him. That's the, that's the biblical narrative. Adam, Adam gave birth to one who was just like him. God created us in his image. And I want to I take that a little bit further and spend a little more time and a little more detail on that this morning. What does it mean to be made in God's image? And, and let me give you four ways in which I think the Bible defines us as being made in God's image. First of all, we are made in God's image in our humanity. And by what I, what I mean by that is, there is something about the physical dimension of humanity that is made in God's image. If you want to turn to go ahead to the towards the end of the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let me explain to you what I'm what I'm trying to get at. I think when we talk about being made in the image of God folks, we have to understand that what we are as human beings in our physical and obviously there are tremendous physical physiological, biological distinctions between men and women. But men and women are nevertheless human beings. And to that extent, they are similar. And that similarity, our our common humanity, having heads and ears and eyes and noses and hands and legs and feet and torsos and skeletons, our, our physical humanity is a dimension of being made in God's image. First Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. So he's talking there about our salvation and that it wasn't purchased with physical things, not even gold and silver. Verse number 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. So, we need to understand, folks, that it isn't just that our Redeemer and our redemption goes back to before the foundation of the world, but that the humanity of Christ goes back to before the foundation of the world. So that it is not as if God made Adam, and then when he became a human being, he said, well, I've already made Adam, I need to come in Adam's form. It was that he made Adam's form, so to speak, in Christ, and when he made Adam, he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So there is the physical correlation there. And in that, in our physical bodies, right, we have a lot of insight as to God's capabilities and the way God thinks and functions 
and operates. In Psalm 94 and verse number 8, and again, you may certainly turn to it if you will, but, but God uses this, right? God speaks to us, to, if I could throw the theological word to you. God regularly speaks to us anthropomorphic, oh my God, I'm going to get, I'm going to butcher it, anthropologically, that's not the right word. He talks to us as if he himself has human attributes. But folks, he does have human attributes because Christ is human. Christ is the perfect man. And this is, to go off on a bit of a tangent, this is one of the great marvels and mysteries of biblical revelation that God who had existed eternally in only spirit form but had functioned always as Father, Son, and Spirit at the incarnation, when Jesus became a human being, when he took on flesh, that from that time, it appears the New Testament always treats him as being from that point on eternally in a body. That the invisible spirit God becomes eternally embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> so when God speaks to us along those lines, as he does in Psalm 94, 8, understand ye brutish among the people, Understand, you wild animal-like among the people. And ye fools, when will ye be wise? When will you understand this? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? So we have, in our humanity, we have a reflection. We're made in God's likeness, folks. We're not God. And we talk about God's communicable attributes and his non-communicable attributes. But we have nothing in, in the dimension and the fullness and the extent that God has. But we have much of what God has because he made us to have it. So that just as God can see, I can see. And just as God can hear, I can hear. And just as God can feel, I can feel. And we'll, of course, get to just as God can think, I can think. God made us in his likeness. He made us in his image. And in fact, folks, if you think about it, what would be the point of having a physical resurrection and, the, and giving us a completely new body if it was not in some way a manifestation of the fact that we are made in his image? And there is a physical component to that image. So when we talk about being made in God's image, our human bodies are representations of God's attributes. And we are, we are made like we are because God made Christ like he is, not the reverse. Not the reverse. Secondly, man is like God in that he possesses personality. And I'm, I'm not going to spend any time on the verses right now. I'll either get to them later or get to them next week. But when we talk about personality, we, we put three things under personality. If you're trying to outline, maybe I should have given you a handout. Right? So, so there is a physical dimension, and we've spent some time talking about that. Not that God the Father is a, 
is a human being, but God the Son is. And the incarnation of Christ is one of those things like the, like the cross of Christ that goes back into the, into the prior to the foundation of the world. And we are then built after that image. And then secondly, man is like God in that he possesses personality. And we talk about personality, we identify that three ways. God has an intellect, or we have an intellect. We have a rationing, reasoning capacity. We have a will. I want things. Of course, we know, and we'll come to this, that in our sinfulness, we usually want things that are wrong. But the fact that we have a will is a representation of God. It is the likeness of God in us. God wants things. He's not just some big, invisible spirit who is ambivalent about things. He has desires. And under personality, we include the idea of emotion. God has feelings. He, he can grieve. He can be sad. He can, he can be happy. In fact, Paul calls him the blessed God, the happy God. He can have joy and he can know sorrow. And again, because that is the nature of God, and God has made us in his image. These are things that we have. Thirdly, man is made in the image of God in that he has morality. He has a physical body made in the likeness of God. He has personality made in the likeness and image of God. He has morality made in the image of and the likeness of God. And under that we would add we would we would add we would describe that in two ways. Number one, he has a conscience that communicates moral precepts. We make evaluations about things, folks, that nothing else in the animal kingdom evaluates. We make moral judgments. <clears throat> this is right, this is wrong. This you should not do. It just doesn't seem right for something like this to be done this way. These are moral judgments. These are judgments that are made because we have been made in God's image. And since we have morality that has been given to us by God, we have moral responsibilities. If you go back into the well, primarily the 18th century, the 1700s, and the formation of the United States, and begin to read, you know that there was a lot of conversation about what went into constituting human governments. And right, so we, we have like, like the Mayflower Compact, which is a 17th century, 1600s, not an 18th century, but a 17th century, a compact an agreement. We bind ourselves together by these terms, by these obligations. The ability to obligate ourselves is a reflection of the moral capacity that God has given to us. We have moral responsibilities. Now, when people disconnect themselves from 
Jehovah God and disconnect themselves from the authority of the Bible, then you end up in a world that like very much like America today in which you in effect have about 300 million deities where every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes or in other words, every man is his own God. And so <clears throat> that's not a good thing. But that thing can only be, folks, the, the depraved world that we have, that we so much lament, can only happen because man has been made in the image of God and can do things that only God can do, like think and wrestle through questions of right and wrong and respond to moral responsibilities. So that God can say to us, you must do this and you cannot do that. And we are genuinely obligated in those lines. <clears throat> and finally, man is like God. The likeness of God is that he possesses spirituality. Spirituality. And we describe that three ways. Number one, he can worship. In fact, folks, worship is all around us. And I, I'm not, I really am not on any kind of a crusade, but there was a lot of worship that happened yesterday on college game day. And there'll be a lot of worship that happens today when the NFL plays. Now, I think it's entirely possible to watch a college football game or to watch an NFL game or to watch the World Series without worshiping those that do, but there are no shortage of people whose entire life's worth and value is tied up in a football team or a sporting event or a job or a celebrity. It's just the way we're built. We like to admire. We, it's just what we do. And we do it because we were created to do it. And folks, that just doesn't happen in the, anywhere else in the animal kingdom. There's, there's no pride of lions that lounges around under a, the shade of a tree, envying the next pride of lions over. It just doesn't work that way, but it works that way with us because we are built to worship. And we are built to fellowship. We are built not simply to travel in a herd, but to have genuine, intimate association with each other. And we will talk more about that. And then we possess spirituality in that human beings, upon their creation, are eternal in nature. Human beings will live, will exist. I don't want to call it life. Human beings will exist somewhere forever. Having been born, they will exist somewhere forever. They will either exist in heaven or they will exist in hell, but they will not go out of existence. And this is because they are made in the likeness of God and made in his image. And we are like him. And in recent years, although I think it's waned, in recent years there was a little bit of a resurgence of nihilism, the idea that God would just take the wicked and exterminate them and they would be gone and that all of those verses about eternal judgment and torment were, were not really real. They were just designed to, to kind of motivate you to become a believer. But, but nothing could be further from the truth. 
That just makes God a liar. That makes God... That makes God like one of the many parents that we encounter who just threaten their children with things they have no intention of following up on. Human beings will exist somewhere eternally because they have been created in the likeness of God. And by the way, folks, and I'm not really trying to go down this and I'm not looking for a fight, that is not true of your pet. When your pet dies, it's dead and it is not waiting for you on the other side. The Bible is, it doesn't deal with this extensively, but when it does talk about it, it talks about it emphatically that God is really fundamentally indifferent to the existence of the animal kingdom with only this exception. They're not there to be abused. The righteous regardeth the life of his beast, but they're just beasts. Dogs are just dogs. Cats are just cats. Whatever your pet guinea pig is, just a pet guinea pig. And when it dies, it's dead. And it's gone. And that's just all it is because that's all God made it to be. But you are different. Not just one step up the evolutionary scale. Radically, completely, totally different. You will exist forever. So these are the... These are... Right, And we can do more exploring, but these are some of the ways in which we are like God. We are like God in that he created a physical body for his Messiah, and that physical body represents, on a limited scale, his abilities. It can see, think. We are, right, we, we can try and divide out all of our components, folks, but, I mean, we're, we're the whole package. Um, you know, we're, we're just... We're just us. I, I know that there's a me and my body and I will die and my spirit will go to be with the Lord. But that's a distinction he can make that's really difficult for me to make in this life. I'm just me. And you're just you. And we have personality and we have morality and we have <clears throat> eternal spirituality. And if you want to turn to Psalm number 8, right? We, I'm just kind of playing a little bit off of Grudem's definition man is like God so those four ways that he's like God and he represents God and we represent God folks in our in our place on earth right let me you're turning to psalm number 8 let me just right let's just let me just read to you again genesis 126 let us make man in our image after our likeness Right? We are God's, we are like God, and we are his representatives. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. We are his representatives. There is a beautiful poetic expression of this in Psalm number 8, which is ultimately of course, about Christ and is quoted that way in the New Testament. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. You are more glorious than the heavens you created. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, which this is, I'm not trying to 
do an exposition of Psalm number 8, but who are God's enemies that are being exalted by babies? I mean, who are God's enemies that are, that are witnessing the exaltation of God by infants? And I would suggest to you folks that the New Testament is pretty clear that we, we, are, the, we are the infants in the psalm. And Satan and the rebelling powers are his enemies. So that God has ordained that out of people like us, he will show himself mighty to superior beings like Satan. Not superior to him, but superior to us. So that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And you know, folks, what's amazing about this is even lost people, even lost people, again, because they have been created in God's image, have the ability to reflect upon the magnitude of the universe and therefore their own insignificance. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. So that what happens, folks, in the book of Hebrews reminded us of this, that what has happened was that we will be, we have been, and Christ in particular was created in human form, lower than the angels, with the end result that he is exalted above the angels, so that humanity is triumphant over angels, which were by initial design clearly a superior form of life to us. Verse number six, thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. <clears throat> so we are God's representatives. We, we rule over this planet like God rules over everything, which... And perhaps, I, I don't even know exactly how to deal with this in a Sunday school lesson, folks. But I would just point out to you, right, because some of you live this and live in by virtue of being where you are in the job world, in the corporate world, in the education world, right? You have to live under all of this climate change nonsense that is going on. And the Christian position should be pretty clear that we have been granted dominion over the planet. We, we have the right, folks, to build roads and to dam streams and to generate electricity and to dig holes in the ground to pull minerals out and to raise animals, even commercially, so that we can butcher them and eat them. These are, these are things that have been given to us by God. We are, we are not desecrating the planet by doing it. We're not desecrating the planet by digging coal out of the ground and burning it to heat our homes. That's not desecration. It's not desecration to pump oil out of the ground and to turn it into gasoline and, and operate our cars. That is not desecration. That is part of the dominion mandate. I mean, God says very early in the book of Genesis... 
look, there's gold there. Right? And, and if we have nothing else, you've got these little primitive tools that you can use to dig the gold out of the ground. So <clears throat> understanding properly the creation and understanding properly our place in the world, folks, is not incidental to the world in which we live. Now, if you go to your next meeting and they're having a climate change discussion and you stand up and go, I think you guys are crazy. God created the world once. He destroyed it with the flood. He's very clear in the book of Peter that he's just kind of hanging on to it until he's ready to burn it up the next time. And he's going to make it all over again. And we can do whatever we want. And I double-dog dare you to try to destroy it. Right? As Doug Wilson recently wrote, we are living in a cathedral of sin. And if you say those kinds of things, you may discover that the cathedral of sin likes to practice church discipline. You might find yourself without a job. But it is nevertheless true. All of Humpty Dumpty's scientists couldn't destroy this world if they tried. Because God has reserved for himself the right to destroy the world yet again. So he's not going to—he's not going to let anybody destroy it till he's ready to destroy it. So, anyway, we are God's representatives. We were given this planet, folks, to wield His authority and to be just like Him, to wield dominion not over our Creator, but over everything else that He created. This is this is why we're here. So there is the pattern. We have been made. In the image of God, after his likeness, we are like him. And Adam and Eve thought like he thought in a limited sense. And they could do what he could do in a limited sense. And they operated under a system of right and wrong. And they were spiritual. They worshipped and they would exist somewhere forever. That is... The pattern. That brings me secondly to this. What is the purpose? Why do this? What is the purpose of making something that is just like God? And I would just argue, folks, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but but I would just make this argument, folks, that The entirety or the remainder of the creation speaks to this. Why why make us in God's image? What what, What is the point of making us in his image? And I realize that salvation and Satan are a part of that. But folks, in its simplest form, to be made in God's image gives me the ability to relate with him on a very real and intimate and almost... Right? Not, not equals, but having a reflection of his abilities. You know, my wife and I, I guess numbers of people do, we watch several of the pet shows, and it just always astounds me to see somebody in a waiting room at a veterinary clinic with a dog, almost always a dog, and rarely a cat, but almost always a dog, and to have somebody say, This is my best friend. That is not your best friend. It just isn't, folks. There's no way that that dog could be your best friend. 
It's just not possible. Well, I love it and it loves me. Do you really think your dog would love you the way you love your dog? Really? And I'm, I'm not an anti-dog crusader. Now, my, we've had dogs. Our position on dogs is very clear. We don't need pets. We have grandchildren. Their parents can have pets. Their parents can have pets. We've done our, we've done our sentence. We've been sentenced to gerbils and parakeets and dogs. I'm not a dog hater. Have you ever noticed, folks, that when invariably, and this is another, I get, right, we watch some of these shows and, and people, you know, there's a, and they're pretty good shows. You know, once you come to grips with the fact that these people are insane because they're earth worshipers, right? These, these zoo shows. And, you know, so here's, here's some 100-pound woman talking to some 500-pound tiger in baby language. Why do we always talk to animals in baby language? You know why we always talk to animals in baby language, folks? Because intuitively we recognize that we're not equals. We just know that. You're not going to go home after a long day and have an existential conversation with Fido about the nature of sin in the world. In Job chapter 41, here's some of the questions that God asked Job. So, right, so I'm just not on a, I'm not on the Ken Largent temper tantrum, but I don't get very far from it when I hear people talk about animals being their best friends. <clears throat> Job 41.1, canst thou, canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, whatever Leviathan is, the big fish, right, the whale. Can you catch him with a hook? Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down. Can you angle for the whale and catch him with a hook? Or tie a noose around his tongue? Canst thou put an hook into his nose? Or bar his jaw through with a thorn? So there's a couple of questions about how difficult he's going to be to manage physically. But now God asks Job this question about Leviathan. Will he make many supplications unto thee? Supposing that you catch the great fish and you build a great aquarium and you put him in your backyard and you feed him all every day and you keep his aquarium clean and you tend after him and you look after him and you bring people over and you go, look, there's my best friend. Will he ever ask anything of you? Will he ever inquire anything of you? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Which, by the way, folks, given our present world and the level of insanity that we are racing towards, I wonder how long it will be till somebody wants to marry their pet. Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? And all that, folks, right, that God just speaks to Job from what should be a position of complete and normal rationality that any human being should look at anything that God has made in the animal kingdom and go, you know what, we are not equals. We are not intellectual equals. We are not social equals. We are not spiritual equals. We are not moral equals. God created man in his own image. 
so that there would be something of his creation with whom he could have genuine fellowship, that he could talk morality, that he could communicate with spiritually, that had personality. And folks, these are just things that the animal kingdom does not possess. And it doesn't possess them by design. And it's never going to possess them. And it may be that elephants can communicate over long distances with sound waves that you and I cannot hear, but it is highly unlikely that they're discussing ancient philosophy. We are not them. They are not us. What is the purpose of being made in the image of God? Because if God didn't make something in his image, it wouldn't be able to talk to him and understand him. And this is why, by the way, to go back to this, in 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul is talking about his financial support, and he goes to the law, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, he asks the question, it's not a rhetorical question, doth God take care for oxen? Is God concerned about the ox? No. An emphatic no. God is not concerned in what is in the Bible an ox is to us a steer. Does God care about steers? No. He wrote that for our sake, Paul said. And so that brings me to this, and I'm going to get just this far. And so what I, what I kind of suspected and addressed at the very beginning was that I wasn't going to get this all done today. So I'm just going to introduce with this and we'll dismiss. Man, God is made in the image of man. That's the pattern. God is made in the image of man. The purpose is not so that we can be like God and we can communicate with God intelligently. Kind of bilaterally. And that brings us, and turn back if you would to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 1, Genesis 5, Genesis 9. These are the three early quotations of this concept of being made in God's image. So there is a pattern. We were created in the image of God. There's a purpose to have fellowship with him, to genuinely do his bidding. And there is a problem. And, of course, the problem is sin. And I just want to raise the question and deal with the first part of the question. What did the fall of man do to being made in the image of God? Has the image of God gone away because man is now sinful? And the answer to that is no. It greatly complicates it. And we will talk about that next week. But Genesis chapter 9. Okay? And of course we, now, we know now in Genesis 9 that we have been through the flood, that God has judged the world, has destroyed it. Adam and his family have been spared and have come through the ark and have been saved and God now begins to speak. Okay? Let's just start in verse number 4. But flesh with the life thereof which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. Now, 
Here is, right, because Adam and Eve, we know, were basically created to to live a vegetarian diet because there's no death in the Garden of Eden. But now by the time we're at the flood, there is clearly death in the world. And so in verse number three, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things, right? Just like I gave you vegetables, I now give you meat. Every living thing that moveth shall be meat for you. But, verse number four, flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. And so, and this, by the way, is a prohibition that continues, right? It was brought into the law that they couldn't eat the blood, and it's carried over into the New Testament, Acts chapter 15, that you can't eat the blood. But otherwise, you can eat the meat. Verse number five, and surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, <clears throat> by man shall his blood be shed. Right? The implementation of capital punishment. Whoso sheddeth man's blood. By man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Now, again, there's, there's a lot to that, folks. I mean, there's just a lot of <clears throat> principles there, and perhaps we'll spend more time looking at them. <clears throat> but the fact that Cain can murder Abel doesn't undo the fact that Cain was made in God's image. His sin marred that, but it didn't eliminate it. So, right, there are people in the world, says Jude, says Jude, there are people in the world who act like wild animals. But, but they're not wild animals. They're fallen creatures made in the image of God. And I'm going to stop there. It's quarter till, and we'll be back at 11 o'clock. Thank you. I have time for a question. I'll take a question. Well, I think the I think the the kind of the, so the question is how do I account for that without a sparrow falling? Well, obviously the ox is all part of God's creation, and there's a sense in which He made it. But but there's no place in Scripture in which God would orient His affections towards those animals, right? That that's why I say. I mean, that's why I say, right? <clears throat> I they're not they're not sinful. They live in a sinful fallen world, but they're not sinful fallen creatures, are they? They're certainly not redeemable creatures. So, right? And, and so, again, to go back to Proverbs, part of my righteousness is reflected in the way I would treat God's creation. The righteous regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Right? So a righteous man is going to treat animals properly. But he's never, never ever should we think of any animal as being in a part with humanity. Not, not in an affection sense, I love my dog like I love my kids. Not in a scientific sense, you know, we're, we're really this close to the great apes. Right? We're, we're not that close to the great apes. <clears throat> you know, we're, however many, whatever the measurable distance between 
a human being and an animal is. So, right, so, you know, again, you know, I mean, Paul just asked the question, doth God take care for oxen? No, he's, ta- he's trying to teach us something. He's not trying to teach you to feed your cows. So, but they're all his. And, and he's attentive to all the animals and he uses all the animals. This is just, okay, now, you know, <clears throat> this is just Kenny Largent's speculation. I, I couldn't prove it biblically, but I, I think that in the, in the wild animal kingdom, we can see unregenerated man, right? Undomesticated animals. Out of control. What, what, do you do with it? what do you do with a wild animal besides cage it? And domesticated animals. Right? I mean, I can, I can, I can see right? a domesticated animal is manageable, submissive, u- usable, has utility to a man. Not true of a wild animal. So, I mean, God, I think, is very wise in his creation and masterful, but he doesn't love the animals the way that he loves us. Right? I mean... At its simplest form, right? Genesis 9.3. Here's everything that moves. Eat it. That's, I'm, seriously, I'm not trying to be funny or gross. We don't eat each other. Right? We're, ex- we're excluded from that. Everything, everything that moves, you can eat. So, right? If the next door neighbor looks tasty, hey. We're obviously distinct. Okay, I, I stop. I'll be happy to talk more about it privately. On that happy cannibalistic note, you're dismissed.